Good afternoon. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is going to be the first book of the New Testament. So it's going to be right after Malachi. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 today. And we're going to be looking at this uh, series of messages that we're going to be doing in the book of Matthew. And we're really going to be looking at what is called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And it is it is Jesus' first message. It's Jesus' first sermon. And it is packed with information, wisdom, knowledge. It, 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 the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity 101. It is the basics and it is the standard that Christ laid out for us in, in Scripture through His Word of how a Christian should live, how they should present themselves, and we're going to get right into it. <clears throat> this is the reading of God's Word in, in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, with his, when he sat down His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that you will remove me out of the way, that your word will be illuminated that those who have ears to hear will receive it. Father, I pray that your word will not return void, and that it will, it will accomplish what it is set out to do. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Beatitudes here, this is what they're called in, in the Sermon on the Mount, but these eight Beatitudes are the key to the Christian life, Okay. These, these eight things, they, they demand a new outlook on life. They demand it. They're not asking because it is a standard of behavior. It is not optional. It, it is the standard of behavior. It's, it's a spiritual resource for us, and, and they leave us awed. They, they leave us sometimes convicted. Because uh, uh, the Beatitudes demand absolute and undiluted perfection. And, and as we're reading this, we're like, man, I, I don't know if I can measure up to that. I don't know if I can do this. Here's the good news. You can't. On your own, you cannot live up to this standard. But that is why we have Jesus. That is why we have the Holy Spirit to guide, direct, to teach. They sound really, really simple. Like these beatitudes, they sound really, really simple, but the application of them is hard. 
when we, as we go on through this, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that reading this, hearing this, sound really, really simple. But when it comes to the application of it, it can be a challenge. One example of that is, is anger. Be angry and don't sin. You say, well, I've never murdered anybody yet, but if you hate somebody, you've already murdered them in your heart. See, the application is harder. And the only person who ever lived the perfect life that, that embodied these teachings is the one who gave them, and that is Jesus Christ, because he lived his life open. He lived his life completely open. He lived open before his family, his friends, his enemy, before God, day to day. Every time he drew breath, he was living it out. And, and in doing so, he demonstrated that the principles embodied in the Beatitudes were not just simply empty idealism, but rather they, they, they were tested in the reality of life that ended at Calvary. That's what the Beatitudes do. That's, what, that's how Jesus embodied this. It wasn't just something that he did on Sunday. It wasn't just something that he did on a Wednesday night for a midweek service. Every single day he was alive. Every second he, he was breathing. He was embodying this. He was demonstrating this. Here's the thing. We have a habit in the West of looking at, at scripture and saying, well, this applies, this doesn't. This is relevant, this isn't. I have to do this, but I don't have to do that. We have this habit of doing that. But when it comes, especially when it comes to, to the Sermon on the Mount, to the Beatitudes, they are not multiple choice. And, and this is the first point. The Beatitudes are not multiple choice. You can't just say, I'm going to do this one, but I'm not going to do that one. It's a package deal. And there's at least four ways to understand Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. There's at least four ways to understand it. And number one is that they are a code of ethics for the disciples and a standard of conduct for all believers. That's number one. This is the standard. What is a standard? Like, that is the minimum. Like, this is the bare minimum that we're going to accept. The Beatitudes, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, this is the bare minimum that Jesus is going to accept when it comes to the Christian life. The second way is they contrast kingdom values, what, what is eternal, with worldly values, with what is temporary. Okay? And number three, they, they contrast the superficial, quote-unquote, faith of the Pharisees with the real faith that Jesus actually demands. Okay, so there's superficial faith and then there's real faith. You have to ask yourself and you have to decide which one do you have. And number four, they show how the Old Testament expectations will be fulfilled in the new kingdom, in the church. So the order and the, the orientation of the Beatitudes kind of give us like some several key insights, okay? So, so the Beatitudes begin and end 
with the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then you go to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise of the kingdom sandwiches all these standards. Like, if you do these, you will see the kingdom. But they, they progress from, from a point of greatest need, as in spiritual bankruptcy, to the point of greatest identification with Christ, meaning experiencing rejection for his sake. So you have spiritual bankruptcy at the beginning because that's how we all come to him, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually empty. Then the end result is, yeah, you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be hated because of the name of Jesus. So, so from his very first message, Jesus is like, hey, you're spiritually bankrupt. You're dead to God in your sin. You need to listen to this. You need to apply this. You need to live this out. You need to believe and trust in me. Because if you do, you will see the kingdom of heaven. But understand this. If you take this seriously, if you take up your cross and you follow after me, persecution is going to come. But if you endure, you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. The first four Beatitudes here outline the, the deepening relationship with God. And the second four is, is the impact of our relationship with other people. Clearly, the Beatitudes are not stages through we pass, pass through and, and we go on to the next one. These aren't stages of life, but they're responses that we have to keep making. Because let's just be honest, sometimes it doesn't matter if you've been saved five minutes or five years, you're going to be poor in spirit sometimes. It does not matter if you've been saved five minutes or, or five years, you're going to start to hunger and thirst after righteousness. So these aren't stages and progressions that we go through in the Christian life. These are responses to everyday situations. And each day we have to utilize our opportunities to show mercy to, to practice peacemaking and to purify our attentions. The Beatitudes should always be the Christian's attitude. I know that rhymed, I know it was probably corny, but it is the reality. Our attitude in the Christian life should be Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. That is our attitude. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in sport, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we see here is submission. Okay, You're like, well, how, how do you say that? Well, let's get into it. Every human being except Jesus is spiritually destitute in the eyes of God. Everyone, we all start at the same level, and that is dead. Dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, we are all spiritually destitute. But only those who see this poverty, who actually see their condition, who see their spiritual condition and actually mourn over their sins and thirst for righteousness will inherit the kingdom of God. When it says blessed are the poor in spirit, it's not saying well, blessed are those who, 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 <laughs> who have no money. What he's saying is, blessed are those who see their condition and realize their need of a Savior. Blessed are the poor 
in spirit. Because without a poverty of spirit, none of us can begin to follow Christ. Okay, without first realizing your state and your condition and how you are and how God sees you, you won't be able to follow after Jesus. It is our awareness that we cannot save ourselves, that we are defenseless, that neither money or power will spare us from, from suffering and from death and from the, the punishment of hell. We have to see that. And if you want to live for God, you must be ready to say and do what seems strange to the world. What does that mean? That means you have to deny yourself. In a world that's saying that everything, everybody matters and everybody's important and you should put you, you first and your truth, your this, your that, God is saying, yeah, I, I need you to die to that and I need you to put me first. I need you to put others first. You must be willing to give when other people take. And that's hard. You must be willing to love when other people hate. That's hard. You know how hard it is to hate the person who, who hates your God or, or hates you because you, you're a Christian and because you're a believer? You know how hard it is to love that person? It's hard. But it can be done. You have to be willing to help when other people abuse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who see their, their, their spiritual wickedness, the, the wretched men that, and women that they are. Blessed are those who see and realize that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit will realize that they cannot please God on their own. Nothing you do in your own power, in your own works, will ever please God. They are poor or, or bankrupt inwardly, and, and they're unable to give anything of value to God, and, and they have to depend on His mercy. That's the first thing that the poor in spirit had to realize, that I, I, I bring nothing to the table. I offer nothing to my salvation. The only thing that I'm bringing to the table is the sin that's making it necessary to begin with. The poor in spirit not only will have, but they already have the kingdom. The very sense of their, of their poverty is, is started in riches. So while others walk in a vain show or, or in a shadow or an image in an unreal world, talking about a, a false view of their self, and all the people that are around them, the poor in spirit are rich in the knowledge of their real case. Now, how can a poor person be rich? Because it, it makes them rich to realize, like, I, I need God. I can't do this. I can't save myself. Having courage to look this in the face, to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you're not enough. No matter what the world is telling you, no matter what life coaches are telling you, or what TED Talks you listen to, or whatever the celebrity pastor of the moment is trying to tell you right now, you are not enough. You cannot save yourself. And when you look at that in the face and you own it guiltlessly, you will begin to feel a strong assurance that unto the upright there arises light and darkness. Psalms 112 verse 4. 
the reality is God wants nothing from us as the price of, of this saving faith. Because there's nothing we can give him. We have to feel our own destitution. We have to feel our, our own wretchedness. We have to actually feel that, own that, and accept that, and then cast ourselves on his compassion. We are relying on his compassion, on his love, on his mercy, and on his grace. We have to own who we are and give it to him. Because the poor in spirit are enriched with the fullness of Christ, which is the kingdom in substance. And when he will say from them that this, uh, he's going to say this on the great white throne. Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Matthew 25, 34. He will invite them to the full fulfillment of an already possessed inheritance. So we see submission. What else do we see in verse 4? We see sorrow. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. <clears throat> the context of verse 4 tells us that, there are mourning, that they are mourning over sin, that they are mourning of, over evil, and, and it's mostly their own, over their own failure of mankind to give proper glory to God. Sola de gloria. Glory to God alone. Mourning generally accompanies sad times and eventually in our lives. Or mourning generally accompanies sad times and events in our life. We've lost people in our life before, right? Like mom or dad or somebody has gone on before us and we mourn that loss. So whether Jesus' followers are mourn for sin or they mourn in suffering, there is mourning that is going to happen. But God promises that, that, that God, actually, he doesn't just promise. He ensures us that they will be comforted. And only God can take away sorrow for sin. Only God can forgive and erase it. And only God can give comfort to those who suffer for, the, for, for his sake because they know their reward is in the kingdom. There he will, just like Revelation 7, 17 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Only God has the power to take away the sorrow, take away the grief, and then exchange that for comfort. So we see submission, we see sorrow. Next, in verse 5, we see salvation. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Beatitudes are, are, are the Beatitudes were more than likely based off of Psalms 37, 11. <clears throat> the, the, the meekness in view is, is the attitude of, of humility and submission to God. And our pattern for meekness is Jesus. How was he our pattern for meekness? He was the meekest man that ever walked this earth, okay? He submitted to the will of the Father. He did nothing of his own agenda, of his own plan, of his own will. He did everything in submission to the will of God. Did he try to change God's mind? Yes, we read in the, in the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, but if it's not, not, not my will, but your will. 
but your will be done. He was in complete submission to the will of the Father, and Jesus used the earth to refer to the future inheritance of the kingdom. Most people realize their position before God, and they gladly live it out. Like, if you try to compare your position to God's position, you're going to find out really, really quick where you stand. So they will gladly live it out before everybody on earth. And if you're really living for God, you're not really going to care what somebody has to say about who you are. Isn't it easier for a gentle person to practice the golden rule than for somebody who isn't? The logical answer is yes. Like, yes, it is really, really easy for a gentle person to treat others the way that they want to be treated. But it's hard for someone who isn't so gentle. It says that we will inherit the earth, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, verses 14 through 17, that, that, that his, his, uh, his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and sand in the sea. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and who Paul calls in Romans 4, 13, heirs of the world. So we see the promise, we see the salvation, we see the sorrow, we see the submission. Now we're going to see the sanctification. And this is something that a lot of people have a, a problem with when it comes to the Christian life because sanctification is hard. Sanctification is going through the fire to get the impurities burnt off of you. Sanctification is a, is a lifelong process. Sanctification is convicting. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. It's not fun. It's like discipline. But the author of Hebrews tells us that those who God loves, he will discipline. Matthew 5, 6 is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, they will be satisfied. Those who seek God's righteousness will receive what they desire. If, you are, if you're seeking after the righteousness of God, you're going to get it. But it's not going to be easy. The only people who, who receive what they desire are those who are actually seeking God's righteousness, not those who are confidently working in their own, their own self-righteousness. If you're working in self-righteousness, God is going to look at you and say, you think you can do it? Okay, have at it. He's going to look at the humble person and say, you're hungry? Come on. Yeah, it's not easy, but eat this steak. Just a little side note, like if you have been saved more than 10 years and you're still on the milk, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to leave the elementary doctrines. The scripture says, like, hey, some of y'all should be preachers and teachers by now, but you're still on milk. Grow up. The words hunger and thirst, they kind of picture this this intense longing that people desire to satisfy necessities that they cannot live without. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I got to get something on my belly. I, I got to get. I got to get some liquid in me. I got to get some nutrients. I got to get filled. I got to get fed. Like it, it's, it's this intense longing to be satisfied. 
So the fourth beatitude bridges the God-centered concerns with the first three and, and neighbor-centered focus with the last four and, and the, ap the appetite and the satisfaction. So Jesus' promises were directed at both the external and the internal desires. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness experience that longing in at least three forms. First, the desire to be righteous, meaning to, to be forgiven and accepted by God and to be right with God. Number two, the desire to do what is right, to do what God commands, imitating it and, and reflecting on God's righteousness. And number three, the desire to see right done, to help bring God's will to the world. That is our righteousness. And we see in verse 7 right here how this kind of shifts to other people because now we're going to see what sympathy looks like. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. God's mercy is not a reward to be earned by us showing mercy to other people. Okay? Like we're not showing mercy to somebody just, just to get mercy back from God. That's not how this works. But it, it's a reward for those who see the magnitude of the mercy of God that he has shown us. So we're like, you know what? I'm a wretched, miserable man. Oh, what a sinner am I. And yet God still shows his mercy to me. So I better be showing mercy to other people because merciful people realize that because they receive mercy from God, they must extend it to other people. This promise does not guarantee mercy in return from other people. So just because you show mercy to somebody, don't expect that person to show it back to you in return because people are flawed. The Christian's comfort comes in the knowledge that no matter how the world treats us, no matter how the world sees us, God will show us mercy both now and when we enter the kingdom of heaven. So do we have sympathy? Do we have mercy? Yes, but don't always expect it in return from other people, but you can always expect it from God if you are truly showing mercy to those around you. And again, we see sanctification in verse 8. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Because God is a spirit. I know this kind of confuses a lot of people. But because God is a spirit, you know, he's, he's not a human being, but because God is a spirit, his divine essence is invisible. Okay, scripture tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So because he is infinitely holy, sinful humans would be destroyed if they were to see his glory directly. That's why God told Moses, hey, um, <clears throat> I need you to turn away. Because if you see me, you're going to die. I need you to turn away. I need you to veil yourself. I, I, you can't look at this and survive. We see that in Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. Like you, you, you can't look at this. You can't look at this pure, righteous being and live. But believers see God through the lens of faith. So we see God through the lens of faith 
And Jesus assures his disciples that since they saw him, they've seen the Father, John 14, 9. In our glorified state in heaven, when we finally get there, so we're justified, which means we're legally declared innocent upon salvation. Then we're sanctified, which is a lifelong process of, of, of working into being righteous, seeking after the righteousness of God and becoming righteous. So we have justification, sanctification, and one day we're going to have our glorification. And that glorification is when we get our new glorified bodies and we're in, in this heavenly state and we can finally see God as he is but we can only do that in a glorified state <clears throat> people characterized <clears throat> as pure in heart are morally pure they're honest and they're sincere okay so they are people of integrity and and, and they have this single-minded commitment to god they're not like James warns about being double-minded, being tossed here and there from every wind and doctrine. They are single-minded when it comes to their commitment with God. They are morally pure. They're honest. They have integrity. But it only comes through a commitment. It only comes through a commitment with a relationship with God that you were able to be morally pure, honest, and have integrity because in turn, people committed totally to God will seek to be morally clean. And you say, well, what is morals? Who defines morals? God. It's funny to me that, that atheists and, and all these other groups borrow, as, as much as they hate it, they borrow so much from the Christian worldview. It, it's just funny to me. The people who say that we have no creator and we have nothing and we're just we're just matter and atoms bumping together, just taking up some space, who by their logic, by their standard, we have no obligation to be moral. So they have to steal and they have to borrow from the Christian worldview in order to justify the fact that, hey, you should not eat your neighbor. We should not kill people. They have to borrow from us because ultimately, no matter how how evil the world is, no matter how much they want to deny God, they can't. Because of their sincere devotion to God, those who are committed, because of their, their sincere devotion to God, they will see God and be accepted by Him because purity is, is a part of life that, that, that is set aside for God. God cannot be around anything that is not pure. And if we want to take a purity test of the church in the West, do you really think that we're going to pass? And everybody's saying, oh, Lord, come quickly, Lord, take your church, Lord, get us out of here. He's coming back for a spotless, blemishless church. Now, do you really want him to come back right now? I mean, wouldn't be too good for us. So we see this. In verse 9, we see evangelism, something that is, again, severely lacking in the church in the West. Evangelism. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Conflict is going to happen. Okay? It's going to happen. 
conflict cannot be avoided. There, there's always going to be some sort of conflict going on between people, between races, between nations. Comes the, the alienation from God. Right? Jesus is the great peacemaker through his wall-destroying death. We, we see that in, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. But in Matthew 5, verses 44 through 45, God calls the children of God to make peace, even with enemies. That's really hard to do. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 tells us this, that he came as the Prince of Peace, and he gave the ultimate sacrifice to bring peace between God and humanity. God calls his children to be peacemakers, so we have to make biblical peace our aim in life. And this involves action, not just passive compliance. What do I mean? There's going to be, like I said, there's going to be conflict. And if we're to be peacemakers, we have to have action. Peacemakers do more than just live peaceful lives. They actively seek to make peace and to cause reconciliation to end bitterness and strife. And in doing that, sometimes we have to call out some things that aren't too comfortable to call out. We have to call out sin. We have to call out false doctrine. We have to call out false teachers. We have to call out a lot of things in order to try to make the peace. We do this in part through evangelism. Preaching and teaching and proclaiming the word of God. The right word of God. Verses 10 through 12, we're going to see suffering. Because sometimes, sometimes conflict will lead to suffering. And it's just funny to me. Well, it's not funny. It's amazing to me how God inspired the writers of Scripture and how everything goes together. Even just a short little passage like Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, how it all just goes together. How every line upon line connects and goes into the next one seamlessly. So we have conflict. Then right after conflict, we have some suffering. Because if you were trying to preserve the gospel, if you're trying to bring peace, you might suffer for it. Verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. You persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A world is, our world is under Satan's control. Okay? The world is dark. The world is evil. The world is under Satan's control. And believers belong to the oppressing army. So there, there's the conflict right there. We are at war. We are at war with, with the enemy, with the devil. And God will make up for the suffering that his children have undergone because of their loyalty to him. 
I can't tell you how many people have died just because they say that I'm a Christian or just because they proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many people have died because of that. I can't tell you how many people that, that Satan has made war on. I can't tell you the amount and the number of people who have been martyred for their faith. I can't tell you the amount of people who have suffered persecution because of the name of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you that because I, I don't know. Millions upon millions upon millions over time. In verse 11, Jesus switched to the second person and he's focusing his comments directly at the disciples who were listening to him. Jesus was telling his disciples that they shouldn't be surprised when people are going to insult you, when they persecute you, and say false things against you, when they say evil things against you because of me. Why? Because Jesus himself was going to face exactly that. The servant is no greater than his master. So if Jesus was going to face that, so was his disciples. And if Jesus and the disciples and the apostles and the early church faced that, so are we. Are we, are we facing it here over in the West to, to the extent that they faced it? No. We don't even know what real persecution really is. So when, stop virtue signaling and stop saying that the church is being persecuted when it's not. Because we don't know what true persecution is. We have it pretty good and pretty comfortable over here right now. So stop saying we're being persecuted because we're not. But because they went through it, because they experienced it, we will too. Perse persecution can be good though. Because if we look through scripture, every time the church was really persecuted, it exploded with growth. People were getting saved. People were getting baptized. People were entering into the kingdom of heaven. Every time persecution came, it was a good thing. It takes our eyes off of our earthly reward. If we're getting persecuted for our faith, it makes us shift our perspective from here on earth to what's eternal. It strips away superficial belief. Because believe me, when, you're, when, you, <laughs> when you start to go under persecution and you are really tested, that's where your genuine versus superficial faith is really going to get tested. It strengthens the faith of those who endure. And our attitude through it serves in, as an example for other people to follow. So, so a person with righteous character can rejoice and be glad because of the promise that your reward is great in heaven. So is persecution a good thing? Yes. Because persecution is going to make you focus on God, His promise, and things of the kingdom rather than anything here on earth. And it's also going to prove your faith genuine. Anybody can say they have faith in good times. What do you do when you're surrounded? So in closing, we are not asked to, to imitate Christ through our own power. Because we can't. It's not going to happen. Jesus, who gives, uh, who gave his life for us, will also give his, his life to us. Meaning the one who died to save us is actually going to be there 
to ensure us, to strengthen us, to guide us, to walk with us. The Beatitudes should always, no matter what, bare minimum, should be the attitude of the believer. And we see God's plan for salvation. And what is that? That even though we are dead in our sin, that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are poor in spirit, that even though that we are dead because, because of the fall in the Garden of Eden, that nothing that we do of our own power will ever be able to save us, that God so loved the world that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son in our place to pay the price of sin that we would never, that we never could or never would pay so that we may be called sons and daughters of God. 